Well, good morning, everybody. It is still morning, isn't it? Yeah. In verse uh, 17, after the quite remarkable and magnificent and uh, wondrous description of Jesus that we see in verses 12 through 16, where Jesus sees the Lord and writes down what he sees, John, excuse me, sees the Lord and writes down what he sees, we looked at that last week, and we pretty much, uh, at least I hope you remember, we pretty much interpreted it. It is the images of majesty, of judgment, and of glory. And that is important because of what follows in chapter 2, as you will see in just a minute. So um, I'm, I'm going to assume there aren't any other questions about that and just go on. Verse 17 then, And when I saw him and fell at his feet as a dead man, and you can see the language, as a dead man, that's a simile, in, in meaning he, he like passed out or he was so overcome by what he saw then he, referring to Jesus, laid his right hand upon me, saying, Do not be afraid. Mm-hmm. So understandably the response would be one of fear, but the Lord says to him, Do not be afraid. And what I want you to do is I want you to observe three statements that Jesus makes about himself. <clears throat> Statement number one, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Now that immediately, that, that takes you back to the earlier parts of the chapter. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning. I am the end. I am the beginning of everything. I am the end of everything. So it's just a statement, and in a sense, a reminder of how he relates to space and time. Number two, I am the living one. I'm alive. That is important because as he goes on, I was dead, behold, I'm alive forevermore. It is referring to he is the resurrected Lord. He has triumphed over death. He's conquered death. He's paid its penalty. It no longer has authority. I am alive, which is is extremely important to all of us. Our Savior is not in the grave. He has been resurrected. And then the third point, he says, I have the keys of death and of Hades. Hades is one of the three names for hell, if you will, in the New Testament. And so when he says, I have the keys of death and of Hades, keys, and I don't think it necessarily means like what I have in my pocket to turn on my car, but it's that I have authority over I have final authority over death and Hades. And that authority I gained through my death, burial, and resurrection. It is a dispensed authority that comes from the Father. And when he says he has authority over Hades, this is an uncomfortable truth, but it's true nonetheless. I have authority, I have the keys over Hades. It is a person's relationship me that determines where they spend eternity that's his point it is a person's relationship with him that determines where they spend eternity what's the other name for Hades, hell and you said third name well there, there's, there's Hades there's Gehenna which is a, and then there is the lake of fire which is in Revelation 12. There are three names for, for hell in the Bible. <clears throat> All right? 
so I mean these are these three statements that the Lord Jesus makes are very significant statements about his person, about his authority and power, and uh, that he is the Lord over everything. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, okay? And therefore, this verse 19 now, therefore the Lord Jesus gives him a command. And don't, don't disconnect the link between who he is and this command. Write, therefore, the things which have, you have seen, the things which are, and the things which shall take place after these things. And so you, ha- you could, uh, many, there are so many different ways you could outline the book of Revelation, but you could outline the book of Revelation based on this verse. The things which you have seen, chapter 1, the things which are, chapter 2 and 3, and the things which shall take place after these things, chapter 5 on through. Uh, chapter 4 on through chapter 20. So you could easily organize the book around that. So what's really important is that you get the the point of verse 19 is Jesus is telling John to write down what he's going to see, which is what the rest of the book is. He will record, he will write down in obedience what he sees. And then finally, in verse 20, it's, it, you, you're going to see this. I actually gave you a little chart in, in your notes on, on uh, page uh, 7. So many of the mysterious and difficult phrases are interpreted for us. And here's one of them. And Jesus just says, As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. <coughs> so they represent the seven churches. And it's really, really important as you're going to see in a minute, Jesus is in the middle of the seven lampstands. What does that mean? Jesus is in the middle of the churches. Because what verse two, sorry, chapter two, what chapters two and three are, are the Lord of the church evaluating his church. Do you understand that sentence? But what two and three are, it's, it's the Lord of the church evaluating his church. And so because of the way in which the Lord Jesus uh, talks about each one of the churches, he is in the ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's going to be at the end of each one of the seven addresses. We can apply that universally to all churches, not just the church of the seven, of the, uh, seven churches of the first century in the Roman province of Asia, but to all churches. So I'm going to say this again. You have the imagery of the Lord of the church standing in the middle of these churches, evaluating his church. That is what is going on in chapters 2 and 3. We are finally done with chapter 1. This is our third week on chapter 1, but that's okay. But um, I'm glad we didn't spend full three weeks on it. Now we can get into chapter 2. But let's just you know, review again. We learn who John is. We learn he's on the Isle of Patmos. We learn that he is there because he's being persecuted by the emperor. And we learn that it is Jesus Christ whom he sees, the enthroned, powerful, majestic, um, glorified. All these words could just keep piling on. Jesus. And he's no longer riding on the fold of a donkey. He's no longer... Uh, on earth being chastised and persecuted by the Pharisees he's the Lord the undisputed Lord of the universe and he is about to reveal if you will 
the final aspect of God's plan. How he's going to bring everything to and wrap everything around Jesus and bring it to an end. Jim, can you speak yeah. to what it means to be what he means by the angel of the churches, or will you get into that when you? Yeah, there is. There are two things I think going on here. We will get into this a little bit because each one of the churches to the angel of the church, etc. Angel is all we're doing there. <coughs> all all we're doing with angel. That's one of the challenges with it. But angel is just a transliteration of a Greek word, angelos. That's the Greek word right there. And it almost always is translated as messenger. And so an, the angel, an angel is a supernatural being that God has created to be his messengers. They're not human. And apparently, I think this is the right way to understand it, there is, it's not called a guardian, but there is a representative angel uh, uh, aligned with overseeing, energizing, watching over each church. So she's addressing it to that angel. Now some have concluded, Jim, that, and I'm not sure that's, that's right because it, it, it's not used that way normally, that angel here is just the elder or the leader of the church. I don't, I, I don't think that's probably the right way to think about that because there's nowhere in the New Testament where angelos is used of a human being. It's angelos is a messenger sent from God. That's the angels. The angels' role is to be messengers for God. That's why God created them. And so I think we should understand that these these are the representative um, angels, each one responsible for a church. Now, does that mean that each one of our churches there is an angel involved? I don't know. I think possibly. But I don't know if we can be dogmatic about that. So there was some kind of interface between the angel and the leaders of these churches, do you think? Uh, some kind of communications? Uh, it must have been. Possibly. It's hard, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to make uh, that kind of a conclusion uh, just from what we have, but, but possibly. Let's take a look at what Jesus says in chapters 2 and 3. I want to go back, I want to make sure, and in your notes on uh, the eighth page, I've talked a little bit about this. There are so many ways to teach these two chapters. One of the ways to teach these two chapters is just say, it's Jesus' historic evaluation of these seven churches in the first century. And that's all it is. I struggle with that, that it's just just applying to those seven churches and nothing else. Instead, I think what we should probably do, and that's how I'm going to teach it, and that's how I, I think we are to really think of it as we examine, study, and try to apply. This is the Lord of the church evaluating his church. And when we're all done, we will have gone through seven evaluations. I want to turn each one of them into a positive. Some of them, Jesus is incredibly affirming. He has nothing negative to say. In a couple of instances, he has nothing positive to say. So what I want to do is, I want to, when we're done, I want to turn this into a positive. This, 
These seven characteristics are the characteristics Jesus wants to see in his church. You follow me? Mm-hmm. And so if, uh, I can't remember where I put that, but if, if you look on ba- page 13, now it's going way ahead, but right in the middle of the page, I just tried to take all of the seven summary statements from the church and turn them into positives. The church must be deeply in love with Jesus, willing to suffer for him, always stand for truth, truth and never compromise on truth, never tolerate syncretism that mixes truth with error, is spiritually alive, is consistently obedient, and is energized and hot for Jesus. And I say that because you'll see when he talks to Laodicea, you're warm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it, you, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. So I just took the metaphor hot. So I want to turn those into, these are, when we're all done, these are the positive qualities that the Lord of the church wants to see in his church. Because this is the Lord of the church evaluating his church. And what I think we are to learn applicationally from this, this is what Jesus wants to see in each one of us, so to speak, but in our local bodies, in our local churches where we worship and where we might be involved and things like that. Are you tracking with me? Do you understand? Because, I mean, I've I've used this, I've preached on chapters 2 and 3 at conferences in many parts of the country over the many years here that I've been doing things like this. And it's, it's, it's a refreshing thing for people to hear it that way. Because in another, I've done it this way at a conference one time, what does a revived church look like? We talk a lot about revival, we pray a lot for revival. What does a revived church look like? This is a pretty good place to start. It really is. This is the Lord Jesus evaluation of his church. And so we just say, oh, I'm starting to get this. And that's how I really would like to, to go through this with you. So are you all tracking with me as we get started with this? And so... To the angel, <laughs> the Lord Jesus is saying, this is what I want to see in this church. This is what I want to see. And so to the angel, help make this occur, <laughs> if you will. So the first one is Ephesus. Now, if you want to look at your map that I gave you to in your packet, remember a couple of weeks ago we just went around the circle. We started Ephesus because it's right in that coastal key port city, which we've developed many times. He's going to start there, then he's going to go north, and he's just going to go around the circle. Number one, verse one. To the church, angel of the church of Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. So, I mean, that's... Nothing difficult about that. It's just summarizing what we read in chapter 1. Here's the Lord of the church standing in the middle of his churches. I know your deeds, the Lord Jesus says, verse 2. Your toil, your perseverance, that you cannot endure evil men. And you put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have the perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Wow. When I read verses 2 and 3, I want to pastor that church. I do. Here's a church that is hard at work, toil. This is a busy church. You don't have to seek every Sunday morning. We need volunteers for this ministry, this ministry, this ministry. They got them lined up at the door. They don't have any trouble getting people. 
Number two, they persevere. They endure. Now, you can tell I preached on this because I'm, I'm getting excited. So I'll calm down. They persevere. They endure. They hang in there. So you don't have to, you don't have to teach and preach your people. Man, they're tracking with you. Whatever the, whatever the difficulty is, we'll make it. We'll hang in there. We're with you. And to make it even more attractive, they cannot endure evil men. Error to them, theological, doctrinal error, is repugnant. And it says they even put their leaders to the test. They evaluate what they hear. They evaluate what they say. And if they found them to be false, you're out of here. Man, I want a pastor church like that. I mean it. That is incredible. But verse 4. But I have this against you. That you have left your first love. What does that mean? Uh, maybe not fanatic. I mean, who's... If the Lord of the church is saying you've left your first love, their love for Christ, whom? Christ. For him. They're busy. They're involved. They're committed. But they've fallen out of love with Jesus. There's not that personal, intimate, loving relationship with Jesus. Which is what it's all about. And so Jesus, Jesus is, um, I was going to say leveling. I'm not sure I want to say leveling a charge. Jesus is evaluating and saying, I see a lot of really good things. But you know, if you don't have love, this isn't worth very much. You remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14? Chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians is all about the spiritual gifts. Chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians is all about evaluating the spiritual gifts. Who They say they have this, evaluate, make sure. What's in the middle of chapter 12 and 13? Love. The love chapter. And what Paul is telling us there with rather crystal clear clarity, busy people with lots of gifts without love is empty and shallow and not worth very much. So in a sense, that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. You have a church that's very busy, persevering and enduring. They test for error in the church, which is good. But there's a rigid conformity. Lots of important rules with little relationship. Because as we've said many, many, many times uh, over the years in this class, and some of you haven't been around that long, but one of the reasons God created us as his image bearers is to have a love relationship with us. The love that the Father, Son, and Spirit have enjoyed for all eternity 
He created image bearers to share that love. And even if um, you're very busy and active, but you're really not in love with Jesus, you're kind of missing the whole point. So it's, it's in, a, in a very real sense, it's a very sad. But you know, and I've, again, I've used this a lot of different ways over the years. But you look at verse 2 can describe an awful lot of local churches. We've got lots of very busy, busy people. But they're just going through the mechanics. There isn't that personal, intimate love with Jesus. It isn't either or. It's both and. And they were doing it in an either or way. And they're missing it. And that's why Jesus is going to have some things to say about that in verse 5. Jim, why do you see that happening in churches? Uh, perhaps once we're on fire for the Lord and sharing their love among the people in their congregation and suddenly now, not suddenly, but over time it evolves. What, what would you point to as some possible reasons for that occurring? I mean, you know, do you have any... Well, I'm not sure there's necessarily one single answer to this, but you, I think, made the key comment in your question over time. I mean, let me just kind of use a a scenario. You have someone that, uh, let's just make pull an age out of the the air, 30-year-old man who had been, uh, you know, involved in his business and very successful and all of that, but things happen, and at age 30, he comes to faith in Christ. His life has totally changed. And he's serious about his faith. He's, he just, he's overwhelmed by God's grace. He's in love with Christ, which affects his love for his wife and his kids. I mean, it's all a very positive thing. And because he's a businessman, highly energized, highly focused, uh, he, it doesn't take him too long until he gets involved in the church. Maybe he gets on the board. I'm talking about overnight, say, five years or something. Gets on the board. Maybe teaching a Sunday school class. And so he's taken the energy and focus and discipline of his life before he came to Christ. And those things are still there. He comes to Christ and he gets involved. And, that's what, and he loses that joy and intimacy with Jesus that he had the first four or five years of his walk with Christ. And over time, he's so busy now, serving on the board, teaching Sunday school, maybe going down the open door and mission, volunteering. Mean, all these things he's so busy at. And he has substituted all that he's busy doing with his relationship with Jesus. Another way to look at it is this. If you go to Luke chapter 10, you have the story. It's, it's, a, it's a, an event, but you have the event of Jesus comes to the house of Mary and Martha. Did those two women, their sisters, did those two women love Jesus? Yes. But you have Martha, busy in the kitchen, preparing the meal, which they were going to have, I guess. And she's really busy. The pizza's in the oven. You've got the dishes for the peanut butter ice cream already. I mean, all these wonderful things that selfishly I would want her to serve. But she's busy, and she just explodes at Jesus. Tell her to help me. I mean, she just explodes at Jesus. Where's Mary? She's at the feet of Jesus. Because Martha's approach, she maximized what she could do for Jesus and minimized what he could do for her. 
whereas Mary maximized what Jesus could do for her, minimized what she could do for Jesus. Because it's all about him. And so, you know, Fred, over time we substitute and it's not that being on the board and being busy and going down the open, but that they're the wrong. It's not. I mean, God wants us to be busy doing those things. But we start all of it with the premise, I love you, Jesus, for all that you've done for me. And that's why I then serve others. You see what I'm saying? And it's, it's, it requires, therefore, a constant, I think, it does in my life anyway, a constant reminder it is all about him. And if I, if I, it, it's fostered by prayer, it's fostered by spending time with his word, it's fostering, fostered by being about other Christians who have the same perspective you have. Or otherwise, you do substitute the idea. My relationship with Jesus is based on me maximizing what I can do for him. Instead of maximizing what he does for me. It's keeping always, what's that old saying? It's always keeping the cart before the horse. And so it's, this is why I think the, poignant, the poignancy of the Ephesus church is, this is many American churches, busy, lots of activities. And making the activities the most important thing, that that's the goal. No, it's not. That is a means to the goal. And so it's, it's, it's that you constantly keep that, you just constantly keep that in check. I studied under a man when I was in, in seminary. He, he really pressed this to us, a group of men. He said, listen, you must, you must keep this as your priority every single day. And so what I want you to do Every day, I want you to say no to something, just to stay in practice. <laughs> just say no to something. No, it's going to impact my relationship with Jesus. And I've never forgotten. I thought that was really, really good. I mean, it, he always had humor. So he always said, is that really humorous? Does he really mean that? Well, there's, there's some humor, but it's, it's that the priority is Jesus in our lives now. That's the priority. And so that means it's just it's because there's one there's one being in the universe who wants us to not have Jesus as our priority, and that's the evil one. If he can get our focus off of Christ, he is he is having some success, and over time that can be pretty pretty lethal. <clears throat> so, so the love that spoken about here, how does it get manifested? Is it just savoring the Lord, or is it? Uh, expressed in worship or I mean, again Jim my goodness I don't think there's one silver but answer to something like that but it is savoring it's worship I mean it's all of those things but I'm going to share it from my perspective and this is a limited perspective because it isn't nobody has a rigid model for how this works but I, I've learned, and it's, it's taken me a long time to learn this, I've learned to just have Jesus involved in everything I'm doing, talk to him about everything I'm doing, and, and share everything with him, thank him for things. I'm, I'm just, I'm learning, I've learned a lot of that from my wife particularly, but just, just keep him, and I don't mean in, in a rigid, you know, I'm 
I have a bunch of checklists. Did I get involved? Jesus involved? Yes. Check it off. Did I tell it? Yes. No. It's just this. It's just the natural, the natural demeanor of our lives. And Jim, I think it takes time to do that. But then with it, I mean, you know, a time of prayer, a time in the Word. I mean, it's all of those things. Many of you, well, I would hope all of you, but coming to a class like this is another example of that. I mean, you're just you're wanting your mind to be to be uh, sensitized to the things of Christ as I study his word, which is his revelation to me, and all of those. And I'm beginning to develop that mindset that honors him. My thoughts are important to him. My motives are important to him. And, and I mean, when I was coming here this morning uh, on the interstate, you know, I mean, a guy, I mean, it was a, a red little Buick, and I mean, he just, he, he literally cut me off. <laughs> I mean, it was just, you know, and I just, I, you know, it happened to all of us, that happens to us a lot. But it was, it was blatant, I don't know why, but it was blatant on his part. He was just really, he was just a mean-spirited guy. And I said I, immediately, immediately, because I knew how my response was going to be. It's happened to you a zillion times. My response was, Jesus, help me with this. Yeah. That's exactly what I, I just said, Jesus, help me with this. And it's, that's, that was my prayer. <laughs> Jesus, help me with this. Because immediately... You know, I'm headed to come to a Bible study like this. Immediately, my mind and my emotions and everything would be revenge, trample on it. I mean, all of those things that I know none of you have any idea what I'm talking about. But those kinds, and so it's just, that's just, I, I know that the Lord Jesus does not want me to respond in a vengeful, bitter spirit. And the only way that's going to happen is immediately I got to talk to him. So it's a straight hour prayer. And I, and I, I was okay. I really was okay. But I can tell you, I wish I could tell you every single time in my life it's been that way. It hasn't. And I could, you know, you can, you can seethe over it. You can think about it. And then, you know, no. It, nothing in eternity depends on that. So just, and Jesus is the only one that can help me with that. Because I really, that's like playing sport, the competitive you know how men are, and I mean women can be, but it's just how you've got to get that under control. And the love relationship with Jesus helps you to do it. Having that kind of a heart for the Lord definitely impact your life. Absolutely. But when James talks about, <clears throat> show me your faith, your your faith by uh, by your works, and I'll show you my no, he said just the other way around. Yeah. Right. And how does that impact that? Because it, it touches on it. It's just that you're doing it as an overflow of what right. you've already got. That's inside. right. That's right, Daryl. And it is. It's that cart before the horse thing again. In other words, we, um, I, not everybody would agree with saying it this way, but I, th- I think our good works are the evidence of our faith and our love in Jesus. Not my good works get me to the point where I have faith in Jesus. It's the consequence of that. And I think probably, don't you think that's what Jesus was getting at when he says to the men in the upper room, since you love me, keep my commandment. But do you see how he does it? Your love relationship with me results in your obedience, not... Your obedience produces your love relationship. 
Because otherwise, then what we do is we develop the mindset, which I think is quite lethal, spiritually speaking, of I perform and perform and perform for God to love me. And yet the teaching of the Bible is consistent. There is nothing you can do which is going to cause God to love you more or less. He loves you infinitely and unconditionally because he's love. So it's, okay, if I can get beyond that, then it's because he loves me that much and because he wants me to respond in love to him that then I desire to obey. I find my, understand my gifts. I get busy using those gifts so that it just naturally starts to flow out of that. But it, the tendency is this all comes and then my love, for, and that's, that's, that's not the right way to think about it. And it's hard because we live, especially for us, in a, we live in a very performance-based society. We, everything about our lives is based on performance. And, it's, and Christianity is saying, don't transfer that thought process into your relationship with God. It isn't about performance. It's about grace and it's about love. And what motivates you is your love for your Savior. And so that is that it's then exemplified in just everything about your life. But it's, and that's what, and we don't know the specifics here because it doesn't tell, Jesus doesn't say it, but he's, he's zeroing in on something. The revived church is the church that's in love with Jesus. That's, that's step number one. I think that's why it's first of the seven. Without that, everything else becomes mechanical ritual. It doesn't have much meaning. And it's then, uh, back to something Jim said, it's that when, when you're in a worship service, your worship is genuine. You're, you're, because it's just, it's just an aspect of what you do as an aspect and dimension of your love relationship with Jesus. So, um, anyway, uh, Rob. As you've been talking, I've been thinking of uh, criticism that many people level at Christians that are in love with their mission. They forget about their relationship. And I get the sense that this is kind of what he's talking about, making a little bit different perspective. Curious about that. Um, I'm, I don't disagree, but I'm not sure what the, your question is. I, I'm sorry, I heard maybe your I, word. Maybe it's so obvious that I'm okay, I just restating what you've been talking about. And I, I don't, but there's just something in my memory that triggered the Christian, criticism of Christians. Yeah, where they forget about why they're performing the mission they are. Hmm. Oh, I, absolutely. Let me kind of relate that to like Harvard or Yale. They were initially Christian mm-hmm. colleges. They sure. Lost and departed from. Yeah. yeah. Uh, if you if you lose if you lose your reason for existence and you lose your passion for the person who created you and did all this and why you're doing this, that is in this case, setting up a school or setting up a church or setting up a mission or anything, yeah, it won't take very long till you you depart and you become something else. I mean, Harvard still has, you know, for Christ's kingdom on their campus. 
But no one in this ta- room, sitting around this table, is going to say that defines the mission of Harvard University. Historically, back in 1642, when it was founded, yes, but not today. I mean, that's why it, when I was in higher education all my life, we used to talk a lot about mission creep. You have to put those two words together, mission creep. But you, you are losing the reason why you came into existence. And in, you understand? That's why mission is so important. At my church with, uh, that I'm involved with now, our mission statement is everywhere, and we keep talking about our mission. It's a mission of transformation, and that's why we exist. Everything revolves around that, but it all relates to what Christ is doing. <clears throat> and if you lose that, then you, you really, not only biologically, just you evolve into something else. And so many churches today, losing that love relationship with Jesus, evolve into just another social institution. It, now listen, I hope this doesn't sound uh, crass or, or even mean-spirited. I don't mean it to sound that way. But if a local church just exists to give food to the hungry, to give shelter to those who are homeless, and to, to give them clothing, if that's all they do, What's unique about that? There are literally dozens of organizations like that in a given metro area. It doesn't mean we do not be involved in things like that. Jesus says we are to meet physical needs. But we also are to meet fundamentally the spiritual need. The church does something that a welfare organization run by a local government doesn't do. A welfare organization feeds and provides shelter, good things. There's nothing wrong with those things. But that's all they do. That's not the church. The church is also interested in your fundamental need is a spiritual need. Remember what Jesus said. I want to give you bread that is bread from the Father that nourishes forever. I want to give you drink, water, that you never have to come to the well again. What well? Not the well in Samaria, but you see, I mean, it's, we're, we are the vehicles God uses to solve the fundamental problem of the human condition, which is the problem of sin, rebellion against God, and Christ is the solution. So if all we're doing is feeding the poor, there are a lot of agents that can do that. Yeah. Now, it doesn't mean we don't do that, but if that's all we do... We might as well shut the door down and just give to the welfare organizations. There's no reason we exist. We're just like another social welfare organization. That's not the church. We are that. Yes, we help meet human needs, but we're doing way beyond that. So you had a lot of very, very busy people at Ephesus doing a lot of really good things, but they're missing the whole point. Busyness doesn't equal love. And so Jesus says, can, can we at least get through this first one? Verse 5, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent. So there are two action words, remember and repent. That's an action word, remember. Remember where you used to be. 
It's been said this way many times. If you are not as close to Jesus as you used to be, guess who moved? It wasn't Jesus. So remember and repent. What does the word repent mean? Yeah, straighten out. It's a pretty radical word. You're going in one direction, turn around and go in the opposite. <laughs> it's a change word. It's a, it's a change word. Change what you are doing. And then, no, I mean, notice, remember, repent, then do. Not do, repent, remember. Remember, repent, then do. The love for Jesus produces the right action. Wow, and that's why it says, but Father, yes. we did all these things yes. in your name. He says, depart from me, you wicked one, for I never knew you. That's right. And did pretty fabulous things, apparently. Yeah. Seemingly miraculous things. Apart from me, I never knew you. Very powerful words that all connect. This is a consistent message throughout the scriptures. I think a lot of us uh, know, remember that time when Christ really had meaning in our lives. And uh, he's saying you can, you can remember that. Absolutely. And, and if you're honest with one another, you, you know where you actually stand. You, I mean, you can tell people things and you can fool people, but really, you can't really fool yourself. Mm -hmm. Nor God, but that's yeah, right. That's right. Yeah. And it's almost like, and, and Fred, maybe that's another way you're saying it. In, in, wrapped around the word remember is um, you know what you need to do. I mean, you know. It's like you remember. That's what David says in Psalm 51. It's a wonderful, difficult, piercing psalm in many because it's his repentance psalm. But he, he, he knows what he needs to do. And he knows what he lost. And he says to the Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. I've lost it. My sin, my, my cover-up, my corrosive, I've lost it, but I want to get back to that. So that's, that's all what Jesus, remember. Remember what your love relationship used to be, from which you've fallen. Remember that. So repent, go back. Let's begin, let's refresh. Let's refresh who we are in our relationship with Jesus. Then, then do the deed. But if all you're doing is doing the deeds, you know, it, it's, not, it's not what Jesus is interested in. He, he likes to see people busy doing his work, but doing his work because they love him and bring glory and magnificence to surrender to him. The boss has just told me the God on his wrist tells him it's time to stop. So we're going to stop. Well, we almost got through the first church, but not quite. So help me to remember to start with verse 6 next week, because there are two things yet we want to deal with. So, But I hope...
Chapter 2? Yeah. We're still in chapter 2, yeah. And if you have time, read uh, read the church at Smyrna and ask this question. Does Jesus have anything negative to say to this church? And if not, why? Okay? Well, we already prayed, so what do you want to do? I guess we better quit, huh? (laughs)